My name is Brian Cam. I'm a writer, researcher, podcaster, working on issues to do with philosophy, history of science, Eastern versus Western cultures, and really all kinds of things. And I've been kind of on a philosophy mission for the last couple of years that I'm now trying to <laughs> excavate myself from and make it sort of intelligible to, to someone who perhaps is has not been on that same journey with me. <laughs> okay, that's great. I um, have been learning a lot from your podcasts and conversations and reading your material around philosophy, and I did not think that I would be interested at all. And now I feel like I am down this rabbit hole as well. So um, <laughs> what's really interesting is to talk to real people <laughs> and uh, get really excited about some of these philosophical ideas and realize nobody knows what the hell you're talking about. So... Mm -hmm. I have tons of questions that come from um, the naive me self that I used to be a year ago, but it's also informed by having discussions with my 16-year-old sons who care a lot about whose fault is what and how the world works in ways that they can understand really quickly, like in 15 seconds, which doesn't usually work. So from that point of view, I just wanted to start our conversation maybe with um, a small and large question about how you think about causality and how you think that is uh, different than the average person thinks about causality. Um, and, and let me just give you a very quick background on that, which is that um, oftentimes if you talk to something something, someone like a five-year-old or six-year-old, they think about um, things in very linear A to B causality, right? So things are unfair if things were, and one particular expectation was uh, had or started with, and something breaks that expectation in a way that rules have been broken. And so it's the other person's fault. It's very easy to sort of track back. And I think from a very early on, when we can start reasoning in that kind of slightly abstract way, we start thinking about causality in this very simple linear way. And so I'm wondering if you can take off from that um, sort of five-year-old's way of thinking. Um, you know, he he bumped into me, um, therefore he's bad, and he made me hit him back, for example, or something mm. like that. How mm. would you think about causality in the most basic uh, kid way, and how is that wrong? And then <laughs> I can I have tons of other questions after that. Yeah, so... Great question, and it's one that's very top of mind at the moment. So I've been thinking that causality is first and foremost derived from situations exactly like the one that you're describing, which is to say that it is about these social situations where someone has done something and we want to attribute intentionality to it. But that may be all well and good from an evolutionary point of view, but it may not be exactly what's going on in experience. So the way that I, I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of Buddhist uh, dependent origination. So in October, I wrote an article about dependent origination and how to use this seemingly esoteric 
Buddhist doctrine in everyday life to understand when a certain story or narrative gets generated that causes an individual suffering. And in this understanding, there's kind of two directions of a story. The first one is something like the one that you described, which is forward causality, let's call it. And A causes B causes C causes D. And you hit me and made me feel this way and made me respond in a certain way. And all of that kind of lines up. Now, the Buddhist practice is to kind of turn this around and look at how, in fact, even though there is a causal story, there are these links, A, B, C, D, things are path dependent. But when you look at them from the opposite direction, you can actually see going backward that each of the A, B, C, and D has many necessary conditions. And so you might think of the forward directional direction as being about causality, A causes B causes C. But when you look at it backwards, you could see that C is dependent on B having happened and B is dependent on A having happened, but actually it gets more and more complicated the further back you go. So does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But let, let me ask you something just as you're there. It's a perfect time for you to break and ask me if it makes sense because it's hard for me to understand um, if you're saying that these are multiple causes that come yes. to bear on one situation, for example. What do you, how can you talk about the opposite direction mm. if, if the premise is that there to some degree isn't directionality right so when you say opposite do you mean opposite to what our natural perception kind of locks onto quickly sort of intuitively or what do you mean by opposite yeah i mean opposite by the kind of default understanding of of what we have you know within experience as and and it may not be natural you know i have you have to be careful with the word natural because I don't necessarily mean natural as in, you know, this is a feature of mammal brains and all mammals do this or something like that. Seems to be a human thing, maybe a recent human thing. But I think that, you know, by the time we're five or six, like you were saying, this is something that we can, we have the ability to do. And the more we do it, the more natural it becomes, if that makes sense. So I'm not saying this is natural in the order of the universe or something like that, nor even that it's natural in the human mind, but it's one way of using the mind. And it's probably the dominant way of understanding a situation is, the, is in one direction. And what you see is, a, you might say that a cause is, a necessary and sufficient condition, like strictly speaking. So, you know, if you say, you know, like certainly it's a necessary condition, right? So like if I hit the window and the window breaks, you can say that I caused the window to break. Now hitting it is kind of like a necessary condition for that to, to happen, but I could also hit the window and it doesn't break, in which case, you see what I mean? It's not, it's not a sufficient condition. It, I, I don't know if that's, 
getting too much into it, but like that is kind of where I'm going, which is that if you look at it in the opposite point of view, like let's say you hit me and it it made me angry, let's say. The other way to to state that kind of situation would be to say that if you hadn't hit me, I wouldn't be angry. Now that might be true, right? But it also might yeah. not be true, right? And yeah. so when, as soon as you start looking at this in the opposite direction, it tends to complicate things. So the kind of sim- simple causality story tends to simplify things. This other way, when you look at it in terms of conditions, tends to complicate things. And you might say, well, why would you ever want to complicate things? There are good reasons why you might want to, <laughs> basically. Uh, but maybe I'm getting too deep into it or, or not making sense. No, no. I think I think actually that's where I wanted to go is I think a lot of this framework for me clicked and started to make sense when I understand the impetus or intention to go to different models of causality and different experiences of them. So I think the question of why would you want to complicate things or why would you want to understand uh, causality in these less, let's at least call it less intuitive in Western sense of the word, um, ways, I think is important. Why would I want to train my kids, for example, to see their world as, um, as constituted by forces that are not deterministic or predictable in the ways that they commonly think? Yes, it's a great question. And I'll try to give just some off-the-cuff intuitions about that. One is that it doesn't seem to be the way that the world actually works. So, you know, basically, if you latch onto the first causal story that pops into your head and you double down on it, which is actually a pretty common thing to do in this day and age, it can lead you to get things pretty wrong, right? And once those, once you start laying down that kind of reasoning, it's easier, once you've started down a path, let's say, it becomes easier and easier to reinforce that path, right? And so one, one issue is that it can lead to these pretty dogmatic or, or inflexible views on subjects. The other, which is, I suppose, the older reason that, that the Buddha is so interested in this, is that these kind of views seem to cause suffering. So this, you know, latching on to a causal story of he said this and it caused me to feel this way can obstruct my ability to understand another person. And it can also, you know, it, it can essentially lead me to dislike or even hate that person as this story gets amplified through what you might call one translation of, of the Buddhist term is mental proliferation. And so it's kind of like a, you might say like a vicious cycle, or it can be a virtuous cycle. There's nothing particularly, you know, it, there are times when this is a great thing to do. It's not like forward causality is always, <laughs> always the wrong frame, or you need to complicate everything all the time. There are plenty of times where you're like, I want a cup of tea in terms of you know, causal linear understanding of the world. I'm going to like heat up water, 
you know, and then I'm going to take this sequential order of events <laughs> and make the cup of tea. And there is absolutely no point in being like, well, what, you know, <laughs> it, is this the causal order of like, does, does pressing this button cause the kettle, you know, like there's no point in challenging causality in this regard, but I can give some examples of where it might make more sense to, to challenge the causal story if that would be helpful absolutely but let's let's right before you do that um just getting back into mental proliferation i think a lot of us may be very um familiar with that in in terms of what some people call rumination right so where a small trigger whether it's a behavioral one or just a thought that comes up in our own minds um seemingly unbidden by other people um mm. and we you know, go into our ruminating, cogitating, you know, and it can go on forever without much more input from the external world per se, right? So is that what you mean? Um, at least the negative side of mental proliferation? Yeah. And I think it has a quality of doubling down on a story, looking <laughs> for more evidence, searching for more evidence. And it's usually possible to find evidence, you know, like if you're on a very one-sided search for it. And so, yeah, I do think that it's definitely related to those issues of anxiety and depression where certain thought patterns get laid down and then become harder and harder to escape. They get sort of their own inertia or, the, or dig a sort of, you know, rut. And that's a self-reinforcing sort of pattern. Um, and at the same time, I, I kind of want to distinguish between two types of rumination because I do think that there's that kind of rumination, which may be a negative and non-productive type of having the same or similar thoughts. And they, they're often negative thoughts that you seemingly, they seemingly don't necessarily correspond to some kind of social reality maybe. And you may be aware of that. And yet this thoughts, the negative thoughts may keep coming up and up and up and they don't necessarily achieve anything and distinguish that from another kind of rumination which i'm actually like really interested in which is to take ideas and consider them carefully again and again and again from different angles over like a period of time which i think is quite important and absolutely you know, yeah we can either talk about that or not talk about What's that or talk about that another time no, no, no. We we can talk about that. I've got two things. So one, just to throw in that Darwin had both kinds of issues, right? Where he could think about an idea for obviously many, many years and elaborate on it and think deeply about it and think critically about it, find opposing ideas. And we have his theories uh, because of that propensity. He was also a man who was depressed. And so he had that also that tendency to ruminate, which caused him anxiety and depressive feelings and so on. So I think there there's an argument, and certainly some people have made the argument that there is something evolutionarily um, adaptive about the depressive ways of thinking in terms of our cognitive style. So I absolutely believe that. But going back, you wanted to talk about, um, sorry about my cat. I'm going to apologize right now because I'm sure he'll That's come okay. in and say hello. Um, Going back, you wanted to, and I think it's really important to elaborate on how that kind of mental proliferation can get us into a lot of trouble. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, and I did want to say, yeah, I, I know a little bit about the research on depressive realism. And yeah, it's a great point that I, I maybe hadn't made that explicitly myself, which is that 
yeah, maybe both of these types of rumination are, are just the same underlying pattern. And, uh, you know, I've kind mm-hmm. of chosen the, to like one and, and not like the other or something <laughs> like that. Um, but the, yeah, in terms of, yeah, mental proliferation is one that I haven't gone into super deeply. There is a term for it that we, it's, it, it it's, um, I'm really bad at pronouncing these poly terms. In fact, I won't pronounce the poly term um, because it might just confuse people. But it appears in the suttas a lot, and it's a word that we don't know what it means exactly. Mental proliferation is one. It comes up in the, these lists, and it, and the Buddha talks about it. It's always in this negative way, but there's a lot of speculation about exactly what it means. And so um, I, I think maybe let's just leave that one there, except that I okay. think it, 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 it is a... My, my sense for now as like a kind of pre- taster or preliminary view which i may abandon later is that it relates to when you generate a story in in buddhist terms this is like a cycle of of dependent origination under the momentary interpretation and i have written an article about this um if anyone's interested to read the details of how this works um that the output of that story so basically you you have some kind of situation arise and then it goes through these stages that are not necessarily causal because they they're conditions for the next stage so basically all these conditions get met and then at the end of it there's generated a kind of story in usually with a self if there is suffering involved so that would be like this person has offended me, something like that. And there's a me sense in it. I've recently been in a debate with a friend about whether the me is is strictly necessary or whether concepts themselves can cause suffering. But leaving that aside, like the Buddha is more concerned with the ones apparently which which give birth to self-view. And the current assumption that I'm operating under is that when you have this mental proliferation, what's happening is the output. So like one story of he offended me becomes the kind of input to another story or to another round of dependent origination. So, you know, you can imagine this happening where you read a text and you say, this person has insulted me. And then you go to, this means they don't respect me. And then that goes to, this is like that other time that someone else disrespected me. And then that goes into, no one respects me, right? A story like that. And that is what I'm kind of operating under the assumption that that when this mental proliferation term comes up, it's a kind of spiraling where it's a self-reinforcing cycle, let's say, an autocatalytic set maybe, where basically you go through one of these rounds and that makes you more likely to go through another. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I mean, I'm trying to see if there is any way around asking you to please give us a two to five minute description of what dependent origination actually is in terms of all of the aspects, because I think it's really hard to talk about it without it having some kind of introduction for people who have just first heard about what dependent origination is. So maybe you could just give us that so that we have something to, to sort of point to. Yeah. And so, as I said, I have a, an article on this, which we should link and 
just in very brief terms, it's this kind of over. <laughs> it has a different number of steps in different suttas, but like the most commonly repeated one has 12 links in this cycle called dependent origination. And it's often understood to be something about reincarnation or rebirth. But in the interpretation that I'm using, which is the momentary or moment by moment interpretation of dependent origination, which comes largely out of Theravada interpretations and Lee Brasington's book, as well as a few others, which I linked to in the article, have been getting into this more recently, but arguably it's the most ancient interpretation. And there is evidence that that this is actually what the Buddha was talking about at the beginning, and then later it comes to mean other things. It, it comes to have other significances. So what are we talking about? We're talking about a process in perception that leads to suffering. It starts with ignorance, and it leads to a state of some kind of anxiety, disturbance, or suffering i think is is the most commonly used word to translate uh this particular term but i think it's more general than that it's like a a sense that something has gone wrong a sense that something could be better a some sense of unsatisfactoriness or it can be pain or suffering or or something more extreme like that but it need not be quite that extreme and what's a little bit odd about this cycle is that the last link in this 12 link chain is this old age suffering and death the penultimate 11th link is birth and this seems weird because everyone's like what is all this stuff going on before birth before that is the urge to become and what i'm just to describe those three together what i'm understanding these to mean is that in a situation you have this desire to make something of some stimulus right so you know you get the text and you're like he shouldn't say this to me i'm gonna show him or something like that urge and then the birth is like the the coming into being of a kind of suffering identity self uh you know a self that's maybe not necessarily offended is it would be a one way of, of of saying a suffering self but but it could be many things just just let's say disturbed anytime we find ourselves disturbed this is the birth of a new situation let's call it and the final stage is once you've got a situation like that there is it is going to have consequences in terms of um dissatisfaction and unhappiness now <laughs> there's another nine steps that uh lead up to those last three i don't know do you think shall, shall i try and go through them quickly or i i think you should because they do make sense with understanding this idea of they all co-emerge um together like the idea yes. that these things are at the same time happening and that you can to some degree, choose which entry point you want to understand your current experience through. And that kind of does this rippling effect towards others. I think it's really important to understand the, I guess, complexity, but also the the number of angles that are being offered in this framework. So I think it's really useful. Okay. Yeah. So before the urge to become, which I think of as like an urge to make something out of a situation, whereas 
you know, the birth is kind of once the situation is is out there, you're, there's some action or, or thought that, that's come into being. And before that comes clinging. And this clinging can be to, often it's to an identity of some kind. So let's say the example where I've received a text and someone has offended me. I'm, I may be clinging to an identity where people need to respect me or something like that. The necessary condition for clinging to arise is craving. And so the craving might be something like acceptance or respect or something like that. And you can see how these are kind of loose um, understandings because it, again, going back to the start of the conversation, these are not causes, right? So it's not that one, you know, that I, I have an, I have a craving for, attention, let's say. I do, in fact, have a craving for attention. That does not always lead inevitably to problems, right? Like having it in place can, can, (laughs) there are problems that can be built on top of that one, but it's not like that craving at all times is always creating these situations. And it doesn't directly spawn them is, is kind of like what the dependent origination understanding is, is trying to get at. And so the craving arises dependent on, and you see how I'm doing this. It's so, so the step before is a necessary condition, but it's not a cause. So mm-hmm. in order for me to have a craving for attention, for example, there needs to have been a feeling tone. Now let's in this case say maybe that feeling tone was previously I got praised for something and now I want that and that felt good. Right. And so in this stage, there's this feeling of good, you know, a pleasurable feeling. And then there's a, a craving to have that again and maybe like a clinging to that state or something like that, lead, going going back into the forward steps. Now, the in order for a pleasant sensation to arise, there has to be a let's see, what have we got? Contact. So there has to be a something has to happen in experience, right? So let's say the praise was said to me to my face by by someone in another situation. And so the contact is that person's words or, or you know, the, this kind of phenomenological, you know, basically just like sounds, right? Coming into my ears. And so this, in order for the good feeling to, to arise, that depends on this actual sensory experience right in order to have to judge a sensation as good there has to be a sensation in the first place like some kind of sensory stimulation in order for that sensory stimulation to be to come in uh, in the buddhist understanding there has the sense doors have to be open so what this means is i'm listening right like let's say the same person said exactly the same thing but i was you know paying attention to something else and I didn't hear the compliment then it wouldn't work right there ha- there's a there's a sense of an attunement um there's a sense that it's being said to me um and you know I might hear the exact same words in a tv show and I wouldn't get this same you know feeling from it because it's it's both the being open to it in a certain attuned to what's going on you know, if so, you know, you might see a reply to a tweet that's not to your tweet, and you're like, "Haha, that's funny." 
And then it's the exact same reply, <laughs> exact same words in a reply to your tweet. And you're like, not funny, right? <laughs> so, like, <laughs> so like the context matters in, in dependent origination. And then in order for the sense stores to be opened, as it's called, there's this earlier step called name and form. And this is, I think, a really important point. It's, it's a hard one to understand, and I don't claim to understand it. But the way I, underst- the way I think about it is the coming together of a concept and an, and an instance or, or a name and uh, instantiation. So let's say even insult, right? Like the first time you're insulted someone probably has to like explain to you that that was insulting, right? Because <laughs> yes. like if you have no concept of insult, like that person is like trying to harm you with words, then it would be hard to be insulted, right? Like there, and and it's, these seems sometimes when we talk about this, it sounds kind of preposterous because the concepts become so familiar that we can't see without them or see around them and see that they are, cultural constructs it's easier to see in other cultures right you know you can think of like in the 18th or 19th century in these situations where literally people fight duels to the death and you read like what was said and you're like uh is that what why is that (laughs) really (laughs) like you know what i mean yeah i think it's also easy to see it with kids i know i you know given that i'm a developmental psychologist um and i had a few of these kids myself uh, around me for a long time, it's really interesting to see the extent to which insult, for example, is con- entirely contextual. Or teenagers, like you can diss somebody and you're just like, seriously, what did he just say? Like he gave you heat or whatever the, f-? like it's all completely contextualized within a culture or within a, a developmental phase. And also within like, it's not just, I think this is where you were also going is that uh, concepts, you know, are relying on language and the way that we use yes. language is contextualized within things like embodied experience and sensations and so on. So maybe you can go on on, on that as well. Yes, precisely. So concepts equate the unequal is what Nietzsche says. Basically all words, you know, even the very concrete ones when we say oak tree or something that seems specific and concrete, in fact, was, you know, resolves into this class of many different objects in the world, right? And we encounter one and maybe we can map it under this. But mm-hmm. we need not have that concept, you know, because I could say, like, for example, I could say acacia tree, and maybe you know what that is. I actually don't know. Like, for me, those are just empty words. I actually don't know mm-hmm. what an acacia tree looks like. <laughs> And so I can't use that concept to map something. Whereas like if, you know, and the same thing goes for these conditions of suffering. Like you need to have like this, this fourth um, link in dependent origination of name and form is like this feeling of, oh, that thing is happening again. It's almost like in order, you know, like, and, you know, there's a lot of talk of trauma and triggers and things like that today and i think a lot of that is going on you know like a lot of that takes place at this space where basically we're mapping something that's just happened under a concept that we already had right and and yes allowing these other um conditions that may be primed to be set up to to lead into another round of suffering right 
That's really, really good. And it reminds me of the research, some of it that we did too, that, that looked at uh, depressed versus non-depressed people. And there is a, um, there's a lack of variability in emotion words and descriptions of emotional and feeling states in people who are suffering from depression. And so there is this sense where, uh, that's a beautiful saying, uh, Nietzsche's um, concepts equate the unequals. Is that what you said? Yes. Such a great idea, right? And so there's a collapsing of experience into like threatening versus non-threatening. And there's very little in between because you haven't been tuning your perception to all sorts of things that happen in between that. So I really think this is an important uh, idea. Yes. And with independent origination, it's not, again, the reason it's so important to stress that it's not a causal, you know, the causality is not the best way to understand this is because it it gives you an option. It gives you the chance to say, oh, I have recognized this as offensive, but I can choose whether or not to go down this route of, of taking offense and making something out of it. Um, and so it, it opens up these kind of options. And, and this stage, name and form, I think it's usually unconscious, but with practice, you can learn to recognize what, you know, that it's happening. It's like, oh, I've, you know, this person has done this. I've mapped it onto this thing that my dad used to do. But actually, yeah. <laughs> I have the option not to see it that way. And another person wouldn't see it that way and wouldn't even occur to them to see it that way, right? Yeah, okay, so so help me think about this. What, one of the things that I have found just mysteriously compelling about this is that it there are some things that remind me and I'm sure other people around cognitive behavioral ideas, right? This idea in therapy, CBT kinds of therapies where it's like, you can just change the way you think about things and you'll feel differently, right? So um, stop doing the negative generalizations um, or or overgeneralizations and think about it this way. The difference to me in terms of the depth of this Buddhist framework is that there seems to be there seems to be a call to this is actually how rea- reality or experience is it's not just a trick of the mind it's yes. not just something we're going to teach you as a technique to get out of this negative state it's actually how things are yes. and maybe you can what i'd love to eventually go with you to is how these ideas link to how we can think about the natural world mm-hmm. and how maybe science gets it wrong sometimes. But I know I'm, I'm skipping too far off, but you see what I, where I'm going with this yes. uh, and why I think it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important, the idea that, sorry, I lost my train of thought there very slightly. We were talking about name and form and oh cbt sorry Mm -hmm. so um yeah the way things are i think it's important to understand the kind of claim that that the buddha is making and or, or that the buddhist tradition is making and that is that this is how experience is and it's not a dogmatic claim you know in the way that a claim like 
well, without without wishing to get into any kind of religious debates, th- there are metaphysical claims you can make about, let, let's just choose one that's less controversial than the one that popped into my head and just say, the universe is infinite or the universe is not infinite. Now, like if you could say these as kind of dogmatic claims now with modern science, you might be able to investigate what these claims, but let's say, you know, you're, you're claiming this in fifth century BC Athens or something. Now, these are kind of like two positions and you can argue about them endlessly and there, you might come up with thought experiments, etc. But at the end of the day that you can't directly investigate it. Now the Buddhist claim is different because it's a, it's a claim about how experience actually works. And so it's actually more like a call to investigation than it is to than it is like a dogmatic assertion about the way things are. So I love that. It's a it's a claim and an invitation to investigation about how things work. So like if I tell you there are certain things that I can tell you that you actually can't investigate, right? So like I could say um, I'm trying to think of like okay. Uh, you know, let's say the soul is immortal. Like, how would you go about investigating that? Let's just, let's say it's a spectrum. Let's say it's not binary. But I could also say like, the way this bicycle works is that when you turn this wheel, then it turns this gear, that gear turn moves this chain, you know, and that moves the, mm-hmm. the wheel. I'm probably describing it really badly and maybe that's <laughs> not how bikes work, but you, you get the idea is that I could make yeah. that claim and you yeah. could go and look at a bike and be like, is he right or is he wrong? And the claim that I just made there, what I'm saying is that even if my claim is completely wrong, which it may well be, and the claim about the immortality of the soul is somehow investigable, like that there's a there's a kind of spectrum where one of these is like a claim where you're just asserting something and it doesn't really, it's not really obvious how one might go about looking at this. Whereas the bicycle claim, it's like, hang on, no, I looked at it and this, this is not how it works. You might come right. away with that understanding. The Buddhist claim is more like the bicycle claim, which is basically to say, we've done really a lot of meditating. <laughs> and this is what we found. <laughs> right. <laughs> and right. we've come to a consensus about this. And maybe it's, you know, it may even be a, an oral tradition that's passed down. So it may not just, you know, there's this tendency to say, there's this guy, the Buddha, and he's the origin of all these things. And there's this whole story about his life. To me, that's not, I mean, I'm not going to say that's definitely true or not true. I, I have no view on that. But like, I do think that contained in this tradition is an enormous amount of wisdom that probably is is a form, it's evolved essentially over, over um, many, many generations of, mm-hmm. you know, thousands and tens of thousands and millions of practitioners over the, over the millennia to find out how this works and to make the assertion. And then you can go in and say, is that how it works? And you can challenge it. Um, and in that way, you know, there's all this talk about like, is Buddhism scientific? I think in this narrow regard, it is because, you know, at least in an idealized sense, the claims of science are here. We're training you up in the tradition as we understand things to work. Now go see what happens with that, with that understanding rather than the dogmatic position of here's the you know theology or the political ideology or whatever and if you don't fall in line with that then you're out of the group in one way or another yeah so yeah 
I think that's really, I mean, okay, so that's, that goes into so many, uh, or opens up so many trajectories because I think what you're talking about is really important and goes to the core of what the idealized scientific, uh, method and even philosophy of science began, right? Where it's about observation and shitloads of observation and getting the reliability of that observation is checked with others' observations in different contexts and you push against how generalizable it is. And of course, you need not only a framework, which the Buddhists seem to have developed over centuries, but also uh, longevity. You have mm, mm. Uh, longevity and ways of collecting that data and sharing that data so that over time things can be compared. Um, and so I think that it's very interesting how many scientists, uh, or at least scientists that I respect, have moved their own either spiritual practices or at least contemplative practices to a Buddhist s sort of tradition. Mm. Do you do you see that as related? Do you think that those those there are reasons um, around methodology and maybe mindset that are related to how Buddhists and scientists or certain types of scientists think about phenomena, re reality, and their own experience of it? Yeah. So as a layperson in both senses of the word, I am neither. <laughs> A Buddhist monastic, nor um, have I ever been a practicing scientist. What it does, it does just seem to me that the goal of Buddhist meditation is actually clear seeing. So, so there is this kind of understanding that this will end suffering, but it's kind of critical that the way that suffering ends is by seeing things as they are. At least that's the claim. And I think it's my view that this does work, that actually the Buddhist view gives you insight into how things arise in the mind. And so once you have that ability to kind of, to some degree, it's about detachment. I know um, that, you know, it's one thing that quite often, you know, people, at least in my life, don't like about the Buddhist, what, what they understand the Buddhist trajectory to be, because it seems to be detaching from potentially everything. And so this, this sense of detachment is something that they don't like. Yet, there is something, you know, in kind of, there, there I suppose there is a compassionate way to kind of remove identity from a situation. And in the Buddhist understanding, that can end suffering and can lead to insights. And I think it can also lead in to insights into other areas as well. And so basically, I think the two practices do go very hand in hand. And in particular, this understanding of dependent origination, and I, I do want to, just for completeness's sake, try to name the, the final three links. Absolutely. Um, but... Um, but it's almost like what the Buddha is describing because it is, it's his understanding like from an experienced practitioner and investigator. I think it's really important that it's a, a process of investigation 
This is how experience works. Now, if he's right in this claim, then it wouldn't be surprising if other people found this also to be true, even if they express it in different words. Mm -hmm. And what I want to argue is that this is exactly what's going on across a lot of philosophy and across a lot of science is that there are these core insights that can be had if you're willing to do the investigative work to see it, see the causes of the obvious, let's say. So rather than saying, it's obvious that this is the right answer. It's obvious that this is how this works because you know this authority said it or that's been my experience or anything like that. But to say, well, how does obviousness arise in the first place? And to, to have a kind of open-minded and skeptical in the sense of like investigative uh, mm -hmm. atti attitude and approach. And it kind of does require a diminution, I can never say that word, of ego to some degree which is one of the kind of effects or, or you know one of the effects of, of let's say one of the milestones is a better better way to say it of of buddhist practice is an ability to see the illusory nature of the self but the self is a conceptual thing and so kind of as a byproduct of doing this you may see the illusory nature of other concepts, which again is not to say, uh, not again, I'm just saying this to be clear, which to be clear is not to say that these concepts are not useful. They are mm -hmm. absolutely useful in organizing action and in the investigation of nature and in the investigation of the mind. Otherwise, there'd be no point in learning this complicated 12-step thing that I'm trying to talk about. Concepts are absolutely imperative. At the same time, they arise out of experience. I know that that's a controversial claim for philosophers. Mm -hmm. Schopenhauer mm -hmm. and, and others very strongly think this. I mean, Locke does too. They're, I mean, th basically, the, this is a thing that, that splits philosophy, right? About about what is the relationship between perception and concepts. And and it it's a very old um, debate. I think it's in, well, I'll just state my position, which is that I think it has to begin in perception. And if it has to begin in perception, then perception is primary, experience is primary, and concepts are secondary. They're derivative. And mm -hmm. probably, at least in their more abstract forms, they require some kind of language. You know, I think mm -hmm. it's very important that other animals, they may be able to have some level of vocabulary maybe a few hundred words or something like that, that they can recognize. Um, but I, I just I just think it's language is super important in understanding these concepts. I was thinking about this this morning because um, even numbers are concepts that are built in language. You can't, mm -hmm. you know, w many languages don't have, you know, numbers going beyond a handful, let's say. All animals, not all animals, sorry, I don't want to overgeneralize, but like many other mammals and corvids and other animals with relatively large brains for their body mass or whatever, I don't want to get into all that, but like <laughs> they have number sense, right? They can kind of, if you have five things and you take one away, they can tell the difference, right? And yeah. probably infants can too. And, but it requires enough, like can, can it, no animal can tell the difference between 67 and 68, like, yeah. from sight 
you actually need yeah. you actually need language for that. And so like I think the important I think it's not really talked about enough how important conceptual thinking is. I mean in a way it's so obvious that we don't really talk about it, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean there there are hours that I really think we need to dive into um this idea of how important uh, you know the the birth of concepts are in our everyday experience of them in development over evolutionary history in terms of what species actually experience them or what's the boundary is there a boundary and so on so i i really want to plant a bookmark on that and i definitely want to bookmark i mean in my own kind of uh ideal conversation uh with you if i had you like in a living room for about an hour and a half to two hours with a fireplace i would ask you to take me through the history of philosophical thinking about the relation between perception and and, and mm. action and then concepts and how we think about that and i so i actually do want to do that i just think mm -mm. we have so many like loose ends right now to, to tie yes. up and one of the things that above beyond the three uh last um dependent origination factors that i wanted you to uh dive back into i did want to talk about detachment um for a second yes, because please the way that and i think you're absolutely right there is a common knee-jerk reaction to to meditating, quote unquote, too much, or uh, to going down a Buddhist path of investigation and so on for a long period where people worry about um, getting to this kind of non-emotional, uncaring detachment sort of thing. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering, maybe a little bit of a function of my own meditation, um, whether this can be understood differently as a detachment from the imperative of holding on to whatever the veil the story the whatever it's a detachment from any story or at mm. least this is how i'm starting to understand it it's not a detachment so for example the the invitation that you talked about to investigate that is a very kind of in some ways affectively laden exciting like engaging inspiring motivating it's action oriented right this this call to investigation and that feels to me very different from the energy of detachment but yes. the detachment is one of like waiting and seeing does does that yes. ring true to you and can you maybe elaborate that a little bit on that what i might bring up is kind of because i think this clinging step is really important in dependent origination and detachment is a kind of lack of clinging and so we, we could think of the difference between love and clinginess or something like that you know one is mm -hmm. kind of like it's perfectly possible to love someone fully and you know with compassion and and care and and all the kinds of things that we think of in a loving relationship without being clingy. And I think mm -hmm. that this kind of, the kind of detachment that we're speaking about when it comes to dependent origination is a loss of that clinging. It is not a loss of passion, enthusiasm, care, you know, 
even passion. I mean, it's it's there's there's every, every, pretty much everything can be had except for this maybe underlying sense of neediness or incompleteness or something like mm-hmm, that. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, and when so immediately this is a really great distinction i think um there's a project there isn't the projection of the self into the thing that you are investigating or experiencing right because that neediness is about like yes what do i need what did i not get developmentally where do i need safety etc that's the clinging versus versus yes the loving uh, but in a detached way from the sense of i guess what this coagulated self feels like it needs to keep going and keep reifying itself Mm, sort of mm. right yes and yeah in terms of the just just for completeness sake even though these are in some ways the hardest three links to to think about i'll try to cover them briefly (laughs) the first one is um so we've just been through name and form and that arises dependent on I'm trying to think of the best way to call it consciousness, I suppose, divided consciousness. And that is like less like highly self-aware or or self-conscious consciousness and less like just pure awareness and more like being conscious of something. So which, you know, some people say that consciousness can never be divided from the objects of consciousness, which I kind of get, but like, let you know, we can say that our attention is on something or not. And so I think this is like a, more about attention, you know, be, an awareness of a situation, a consciousness of, that something is wrong. That's this kind of step. And you can kind of sometimes catch this right when it happens where, you know, where, you know, you read the text and it's, it's before you know one thing that's important to stress about dependent origination is that without practice the step the each step is very fast and each link gets kicked off very fast and it's almost invisible once it's happened it can the whole damn thing can happen in just like a split second and so typically you don't notice that there's a different there's a gap and there may not even be a gap in in terms of phenomenology between reading something interpreting it and you know forming a view on it but of course there has to be right i mean like you know there are words on a screen you've got to somehow assemble you know like yeah what does this mean and so we know on uh, like at least a neurological level something's happening we don't have to be too specific about what but then you know this is each of these links in the chain is getting kicked off so quickly and so but with dependent origination practice you can actually sometimes see oh something like i've become like this has grabbed my attention even though i've not yet felt the feeling and Mm -hmm. um that is i think it's it's more typical that without practice you become aware long after the feeling and maybe well into the story by the time you're Mm -hmm. aware of what's that, that something's happening but it is possible to spot consciousness of like oh something's about to happen (laughs) Um, yeah and this consciousness arises dependent in the buddhist understanding on concoctions or formations sometimes they're called volitional formations and 
these are quite hard to describe, but I often think about concocting because it is a state that you can like being ready to generate a story. Sometimes you, if you ever had that feeling like anything could set you off and you're just looking for something mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. be angry about, like, of course, even when you're in this state, you usually sort of rationalize it and you're like, oh, I'm angry about this. But, but like, yeah. sometimes that thing will go away and then there's another thing. And, you know, and, and you can become familiar with this, this state. And I think of that as concocting. In Buddhist, like, understanding these concoctions are, it's just everything, all con- mm-hmm. condition formations. So, in other words, it could be, you know, the text on the screen, it could be a concept like Buddhism, it could be a dependent origination, it could be the idea of, you know, love or something like that. Like, in the Buddhist understanding, each of these are conditioned things. They have this whole history, they all come together under this kind of heading and because they're conditioned formations they are subject to dependent origination basically and so just for uh, clarification can you is there something that is not a conditioned formation (laughs) that we can perceive or understand like even have in mind it's a good question and i actually don't know the answer to this i'm like vaguely aware that there's um there's an understanding of how the mind of an arhant, like an enlightened mm-hmm. being works mm-hmm. and that they can still kind of function in the world, but that they don't involve themselves in these conditioned things. Right. I don't like, and that's that's like my very limited understanding. Like I, I'm just like vaguely aware that there is some part of the suttas that talks about this. There's some question as to whether Nibbana or Nirvana is unconditioned and I don't have views on these and I don't really know, like, like, you know, one claim might be that Nibbana is some an experience you can have and it's unconditioned. Maybe. I don't know. I right. wouldn't, wouldn't stake anything on it because <laughs> mm-hmm. I wouldn't, okay. on, on my own understanding, like, uh, so, um, but it's a great question. And, and I actually, I actually just don't know. I suppose it's hard to think of them because in this in the broadest sense what we're talking about is something arises dependent on something else that's it you know so basically if you're talking about water and we think of it as well it's this hydrogen and oxygen thing water's conditioned right yeah it's because it's dependent on these other things and then you know so so it you know you quickly get into metaphysics in this thing which is not which is something i try to avoid doing but you know what i mean like well what about hydrogen what's hydrogen and you know you can keep asking these questions back yeah i don't know that we get to a point where we say nope this part's unconditioned we keep thinking that we do yeah <laughs> like, yeah you know, this question kind of remains open doesn't yeah it? because it is what it, what is it this 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 because i think actually if we think about all that there are no states and it's all process whether yes. it's our our own thinking and and so on but also the world everything is process right and if we truly uh, see that in all in all its layers um then you almost can't imagine something unconditioned right because yes. it is all through the flow of okay then we get into time but that's a different thing but but that's why it's so confusing to me <laughs> yes and i think that this is important i i don't know if i have any greater insight into that but i'm I'm pretty sure 
and and my knowledge of you know I'm I'm just getting into all this stuff in the in the past few months, so I'm far from an expert on on the Buddhist suttas or anything, but I'm very interested in it and 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 actively studying it at the moment. And so the question are all you know. I think there is this idea all dhammas are sankhara or something like that. Like they're all all imaginable, like all processes or ways or like things basically, um, as we might say in our kind of non-process philosophy state are conditioned. I think there that assertion is made, but I don't want to like be held held to that because maybe I'm wrong. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the understanding is that these conditioned things arise on ignorance. Now, ignorance is sometimes said to be not knowing the four noble truths, which are, you know, suffering, the causes of the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path to the end of suffering are the kind of four noble truths. There's a question as to whether these are late additions. Um, they may not be. This is a whole debate that I, I, it's probably too long to get into here, but the one thing that I will say about ignorance, so so it, it, it's not the same thing as ignorance of the three characteristics, although I think there, that's part of it, which is the, the three marks of existence, just briefly, are mm-hmm. that things don't have an essence, things are impermanent, and things... Uh, are unsatisfactory, right? So mm-hmm. these are this is the claim that all dhammas, basically, or all, um, all, let's just say perceptions for now, um, that we can have, they don't last, they don't permanently satisfy us, and they aren't, they don't have their own essences outside of the experience that we're having mm-hmm. of them. They are just, they just present, and that's kind of, that's all you can get. Now, that assertion those three characteristics again this is not a dogmatic um metaphysical claim it's basically saying here's our observation about all perception Mm -hmm. they have these three Mm -hmm. characteristics now one i've been thinking about ignorance as basically an inversion of those three characteristics i've been told that this is slightly wrong so don't take it take it with a grain of salt (laughs) but like the one one way of getting landing yourself into suffering is to not see the three characteristics so to see yourself self as self to see things as permanent and to see things as some source of satisfaction so like you can imagine this in everyday life right which is like if i just had x then i would be happy and this illusion is extremely persistent it can lead us to the gates of death really (laughs) (laughs) you know it's uh so if I just had this, then I would be happy, you know, and, it, and it, yes. you know, with any kind of, you know, practice, you'll, you'll see that, that this illusion never goes away. Right. Or, or, you know, let's, if, if that wish is met, another wish arises course, immediately yeah. on its back. So I've been thinking about ignorance as being kind of in that state where, where we're either thinking of things as permanent or we're thinking of things as satisfactory or we're thinking of things as essential, like in essential terms, and that those are more likely to, to lead off into this cycle. One other thing that I think it's important to say at this stage is that the Buddha stressed repeatedly that just because he's listing ignorance first does not mean that this is a cause of the others. It does not mean that it's a primary 
it's not a first cause. Like he mm -hmm. seemed to be well aware of some of the theological debates that were happening throughout Eurasia. These will be familiar from, you know, the Abrahamic religions, but the question of a prime mover, which is still going on, you know, maybe even right. today, but certainly in the Middle Ages, it was still, still going on, was already present in 500 BC. And the Buddha was reacting against this and saying, you must not assume that because I've said this word first, that it is somehow primary. And he kind of tries to stress that these are in some kind of that you know it's it's cyclical it's complicated it's interlinked it's not a set of a b c d e just as we were saying at the beginning it's more like i i called it a web i've, I've been since mm -hmm. a little bit challenged on that like saying why do you say it's a web and i i found places in the suttas where they say that um conditioned things are dependent on consciousness and con and consciousness is con dependent on conditioned things and the person kind of went away and said oh yeah that's actually true that that, that one is circular but but whether it's a more complex web remains to be seen that is kind of how i think of it but i don't know whether that's there's support for that in the in the suttas or in, in other people's and, experience. And what you mean by web or what you want to try to clarify by that image is just that they are, their tensions are interlaced or that, that one necessarily can be related or reliant um, on another or is because otherwise with a circular sort of where sometimes it's called this wheel, right? Yes. Um, you don't have these kind of cross references to different parts of the um those 12 so is that what why the web is more important for you that's what i'm trying it? to go yeah. for yeah that sometimes they have multiple dependencies and you know right. one of the important things is that in the understanding of dependent origination if you can knock out one of these then the whole the process mm. can't finish and so it's important to understand that these are the kind of critical dependencies but there might be other more complex interdependencies in my article i kind of described it in terms of software there's a thing that some people might be familiar with called dependency hell within <laughs> linux where basically you try to install one piece of software it needs this other piece of software but that piece of software needs you know a software that depends on the first piece of software or something like that and so basically you're in this situation where you can't unpick it and mm -hmm. the buddha i think there's kind of support for this in the suttas the the buddha describes this generation as being endlessly tangled up in this cycle of rebirth now in my interpretation or or in in the in the momentary interpretation of dependent origination what he's talking about is not you know rebirth into another life but the birth of self-view and yes. so on a daily basis and so if that's the case then he's saying, look, you know, the, these people are incredibly tangled up and the tangling is what's, you know, leading to this endless cycle of rebirth, by which he means endless kind of popping up of identity views that cause suffering, you know, which we can, you know, I don't think mm -hmm. you, you only need to, a little bit of time on Twitter to, to realize how <laughs> quickly these cycles can, can you know, arise and, and uh, potentially pass away. Yeah. And and is there a is there a teaching or an assumption not an assumption but a, a sort of understanding that if one tries to um disentangle or or understand analytically I guess um 
these 12 points of entry to an, uh, an understanding of any of these experiences, that that practice itself decreases the triggering of the whole um, configuration over time? Yeah, I think that is the assumption. I, I think, well, I think the idea is that you first gain the ability to look at the three characteristics of existence or the three marks of existence, as they're also called, to allow the, the illusion of self to dissipate. Once you're able to do that reliably, then you can traverse backwards causality on individual stories. So basically, mm. and then once you do this on one story, it, it can, can actually kind of dismantle classes of stories. So like, I, and I think that's to do with the name and form step, which is once you see, oh, this concept of, yes. for me, it's laziness. Like I, I really have a real strong reaction to, to laziness. Uh, mm -hmm. in other people but also in myself and and then i i'm like why am i suffering why am i so stressed out about this thing and then i'll i'll find out that the underlying cause is i've classed this thing that's just happened under my own laziness basically mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that triggers me and then i'm so so i'm not saying that that knowledge alone can fix it but then it does open up this space for practice where i can then examine it and then and and spot it sooner on and like you were saying yes I, I basically think the answer to your question is yes that now the laziness thing is just much more obvious when that's getting triggered and i no longer have to go all the way to the end where i you know feel you know self-loathing yeah. over some thing that i realize is like oh you know that's just that thing happening again you know yes yes uh and is it to you? So laziness is yours. You know, I can think f for me, it is sort of like a, um, uh, I guess, mindless meanness, right? My own and others is mm. my kind of um, trigger for all sorts of things that, and, and so, but my question is, I think in trying at least, I, I seem to miss many times when I do the sort of where I, I attempt the dependent origination uh, type of meditation, I seem to miss half of them. <laughs> I seem mm. to go back to the same ones. You know, concoction is definitely one of them. Uh, but form is, is also uh, another one. But one of the, the feelings that I think is maybe potentially liberating is not so much that you see whatever your theme is that you particularly keep creating narratives around it's that you're watching these narratives emerge in time over and over and you yes. see because you've been able to take apart or slow down the process you see it as just that is, is that is that part of the insight of how this works or is there something more that you try to get at? I'm not sure what I'm asking, but I think that the point is that I'm, I'm asking whether this practice basically is one that as you get better at it, the reason why these things stop or, or start emerging less and less is more that you see their kind of um, 
they're, they're just something you build yourself, right? And yes. that very fact has an impact on your on You your see suffering. the conditioned nature of yes. them. Yeah, yes, I think exactly. that's right. And so, yeah, it, I, think there's, I think there's many different ways that it can work. And I think that this is because it's getting at a, an underlying way of using attention that is, it's a little hard to describe. There, there's a few places in, not a few, there, there's like hundreds of times in the suttas that they talk about this more fundamental principle where basically it's like, if this arises, then that arises, which means if this ceases, then that ceases. And dependent origination is just like a kind of instantiation or, or manifestation of that thing. And I think that this is also, to go back to what you were asking about science, the same thing that Darwin is doing. And maybe we can leave that as a teaser for now, just to Absolutely. say that basically Darwin's way of investigating categories, as in species and varieties, is in important ways very similar to the exact practice that we're describing in terms of how does this come together and it is a form of de detective work we've we've used the term investigation yes. over and over it is yeah it's like detective work and in that sense it may be the underlying principle behind all the historical sciences whether astronomy uh geology anthropology archaeology history etc so <laughs> that's another it, teaser yeah yeah it's a very much a teaser very much one of the <laughs> 12, weirdly enough that I have 12 um, thematic questions. And I think it's really important, you know, just as the, just as this conversation to me is an instantiation of um, a process where you are learning from the Buddhist uh, tradition, a set of concepts and frameworks and so on. And then you're um, investigating that in your own experience and even investigating that or even further investigating that in conversation with me mm. and seeing to what degree that hits or doesn't hit or where our concepts are mismatched in some way or somewhat less or more aligned. And then going back to the conceptual framework to say, this is why this works and this is why Schopenhauer and these folks are on this side and this is why these other folks are on another side. That kind of iterative thinking between conceptual and experiential and back, um, I think is what we've been doing in this co uh, conversation. Not so much the experience, but maybe in conversation. But I think that's really important and, and also a springboard to what I want to talk uh, to you about at some point um, around the methodology of philosophical inquiry that I think is really important to consider not only what it is but why you got to it and how you got to it mm. um, I'm not sure if if you want to take a break right now or if you have something top of mind that you want to follow through with that we've already talked yeah, about yeah let's take a break so is that yeah. your first question of 12 is that right yeah <laughs> okay yeah. excellent <laughs> literally yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay well do you have any other questions relating to the end of that or no we i think it there? i think we can leave it there um very much i'm i'm thrilled to see that so many of the the list 
of themes that I wanted to touch on are already being seeded in this. Mm. It, to me, that that really indicates that they are so intertwined and so important to take apart and look deeper into. So I'm just happy mm, mm, mm. about that. Excellent. Well, this has been great. Thank you yeah, so much yes. for Thank you. asking. Yeah, of course. Thank you. This is Brian Cam, and you have been listening to Clear Story. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And I will be recording more episodes in this series, which cover some of the philosophical questions that I am looking at. Causality, which we started on this episode, is one that I will continue on. So I hope you enjoyed it. And if you would like to support this show, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Brian Cam. I will put a link to that in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and I hope to hear from you.